Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm joined by Jocelyn Downey, a professor and chair of public policy and law at Dalhousie's Schulich Law School. I reached out to her because she is also an expert in the law of assisted dying. Back in 2004, Professor Downey published a book that made the case for a legal assisted dying framework, and she worked with a pro bono legal team in the 2015 case of Carter, in which our Supreme Court unanimously recognized a constitutional right to death with dignity. Since then, Professor Downey has participated in several expert panels on physician-assisted dying, and she has been critical of the government's legislative efforts for failing to respect the rights set out by the court in Carter. The government has now reintroduced Bill C-7 that would address the unconstitutionality of its past legislative effort, but there remain problems with the law as drafted, and there is no one better to walk us through those problems than Professor Downey. Professor Downey, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure. So you were very vocal in response to the government's initial attempt in the last parliament, C-14, to create a regulatory framework for assisted dying. And your response was to say, this is unconstitutional. It has challenges. A Quebec court agreed with you, and the government has decided to abide by that decision. C-7 is the government's answer to that decision. There are positive elements and there are negative elements to C7, but I want to start with the positive elements. How is C7 an improvement on the law that came before? The most important improvement is that they have removed reasonably foreseeable as an eligibility criteria, but they had to do that because of the court decision. It was unconstitutional. Then the next most important, and this one they they deserve credit for because this actually is them going further than the court indicated they needed to, and they really listened to Canadians and what they did was they put in something that we could call Audrey's Amendment. And what that is, is a provision that allows that once you've met all the eligibility criteria, you can set a date in the future so that you can have made even if you lose capacity. And the reason that this is so important is illustrated through Audrey's case. Audrey was a woman, Audrey Parker, a woman in uh, Nova Scotia, where I live. And she wanted to have made, she was qualified, she was eligible for made. She actually also wanted, though, to live, try and live through the holiday season, but she was at risk of losing capacity. And if she lost capacity because of the way the C-14 was written, she wouldn't have been allowed to have made. And so she died on November 1st, earlier than she wanted to, because she wanted to be sure she could have made. And what is in C-7 is a provision that will allow someone like Audrey to have access to made and to live as long as she, you know, try for as long as she can, because what she'd be able to do is say, okay, I qualify now, but let's say I lose capacity. I want to keep going. If I lose capacity December 28th, I'd like to have made January 6th, and she can do that. So it's introduced something called final consent waivers for people who are eligible, and that's really, really important. And it responds to one of the three categories of advanced requests out of the Council of Canadian Academies, and so far as one of the categories is people who are already eligible for MAID. That would be Audrey right. Parker. The other two categories are unaddressed, where diagnosed but not yet eligible. It strikes me that that would have been a sensible thing to proceed with as well. And the other mm-hmm. category, which it brings more complications, would be where someone has not yet been diagnosed at all. And yep. the Council of Canadian Academies said, well, we need greater certainty. I personally think sunset clauses could provide greater certainty, but they they thought it was more complicated. And Mm -hmm. so we at least have knocked off one of the three. Exactly. But I would would flag that that second category where you've had a diagnosis of a grievous and irremediable condition, but you're not yet experiencing intolerable suffering, that is a category that the 
Provincial Territorial Expert Advisory Group on Physician-Assisted Dying said you should allow. That is a group that the Special Joint Committee of the House and the Senate said you should allow when people were considering seat 14. And it's a group that the serious majority of Canadians support. So yeah, I would agree. I'd, I would rather have seen that in this bill. I think it should be in the bill, but I'm not sort of going to the wall on that in part because yes, we have the five-year review coming. And also, you know, they've taken a step. They've taken an important step. And so credit for taking a step. Not all obvious steps, but some obvious steps. Yeah. Yeah. And given that they've been prepared to take a step they weren't forced to take by the court, which is the first time any government has done that in relation to assisted dying, right? Every other gain we've made has been through the courts. Okay. Maybe I'll take you on your word that you're going to actually reflect on this and figure out how to do it and then introduce it later. That second category, whether they'll ever get to the third, I don't know. As you say, it's more controversial. Well, let's talk about the change that they made in response to the court decision, because it was obvious, I think, to most legal experts. It was certainly obvious to me as I wouldn't cons- hold my, I wouldn't hold myself out as a legal expert, but I certainly have done a lot of reading on Section 7, and I've written specifically on Carter, and I have read that decision forwards and backwards many, many times. Mm-hmm. And it was very obvious to me that there were constitutional questions and constitutional concerns about imposing an additional criterion over and above what the Supreme Court had established in Carter. And we see, obviously, in the Quebec decision, they said exactly what the experts expected the court to say, which is you can't exclude people who are suffering in an incurable way, in a in a intolerable way. You can't exclude them where they have capacity for making a decision to end their life. It is cruel and unfair. And we have answered that, but we have answered it in part. And so far as there still is this criterion of reasonable foreseeable death, but instead of a blanket exclusion, it sets people down a different path. And walk me through why that is still of great concern. So there are two main reasons. The first is that that second track that you're talking about. So if your natural death is not yet reasonably foreseeable, you go down track two and that kicks you into, for example, a 90 day waiting period, which given that you have to already be experiencing enduring and intolerable suffering before that clock starts, that seems outrageous. I get it. If you want to say you've got your diagnosis but your suffering hasn't started yet, or it hasn't reached intolerability, you start the clock then. But to start it when, by definition, you're experiencing enduring and intolerable suffering is problematic. Especially when, on the other hand, we are waiving a 10-day waiting period. So on the one hand, we are waiving it for people who are suffering intolerably, saying, we don't want you to wait at all because we understand the unfairness and unconscionability of making you wait. And on the other hand, we're saying, but this other track, we're making you wait 90 days. Yeah. And I was surprised when the 10 days went, actually, because there was an exception. And that is if if loss of capacity or death were imminent, then you could have it in less than 10 days. And 10 days, I don't think was creating so much of a problem for people. But 90 is startling. And I get why they thought 90, because what they're trying to do is they're, they're, they're looking at conditions that they think are more likely to have people change their minds. So you have a traumatic injury. Uh, You have a mental disorder. These are the things that they have in their mind. And so they want to ensure that lots of steps are taken to ensure you have supports and that you really want this and you don't change your mind and so on. Well, I get that, but not with the clock starting the way it starts. And it does have additional obligations on that second track as well, which is you have to seek out expert opinions. And I raise this question 
in the debate we had pre-pandemic where I just don't know enough about the availability of that expertise across the country. And I do worry about access to made where there isn't that kind of expertise. Absolutely. B, it says you have to have the opinion, not that you have to consult with someone with expertise, but you have to get the opinion from it. That means you need to find a provider who's willing to give an opinion in the context of made. And you're going to have conscientious objectors. So we already have a shortage of specialists. Then you add on that it's not all specialists. Whereas if it was simply that you do a consultation, more would be willing to provide. And the third point is, it's not always necessary, right? Because understanding, fully understanding and being expert in the condition the person has may be irrelevant to whether they meet the eligibility criteria, because it could be, in fact, disconnected. It's not the reason that they're seeking it. It's very clear they have the condition and their capacity is clear, absolutely clear to a family doc or to an experienced nurse practitioner, for instance. So I think what what we should be doing is relying on well-established practice, which is you as an assessor and a provider have to be of the opinion that the person meets all the criteria and has had the options discussed with them and so on. Well, if you need to see a consultant, you already under the law have to see a consultant. Because if you can't form that opinion by yourself on the basis of your expertise, if you need additional expertise, you're required by the law because you can't reasonably form the opinion they meet the criteria. I mean, in one way, you would say it just should be gone because it just should be good practice that clinicians always talk with experts if they don't have this expertise themselves. The other is if you want to keep it, um, at least soften it in the way that is not going to make it basically a barrier to access for anybody. Anybody who doesn't have an expert in their disease as their assessor or provider. So a family doc, a nurse practitioner. And if you were in my shoes, the first step would be delete this section. It happens to be section 3.1, but it would be delete the dual track. But if it was to be maintained, you would take some additional steps to amend it such that you would address these knock-on concerns. Yeah. I mean, I tend to take the view that you know, Carter certainly didn't have that. And I don't think it's defensible. Will people litigate over it? Because that's, of course, what compels governments sometimes to move. It's less likely because they do have access. It's not an eligibility criterion anymore. It's a procedural track. These are barriers. And if they can soften them such that they don't become absolute barriers to access or unreasonable barriers to access, like harken back to the abortion. How did, how did the abortion law get, get struck? was because there were these therapeutic committees that were barriers to access because some hospitals didn't even have them. So you had to get this committee approval. Well, so if we end up with that kind of problem with access and it's not defensible and it's causing harm, then you've got a problem. So it becomes unconstitutional, not in purpose, but in effect. Exactly. Exactly. And there is a risk of that depending on how that expert consultation goes. And I think it would be unconstitutional if you had a requirement of experts. Experts are rare. You have to get them to give opinions, so they're even more rare. And you're requiring it in circumstances in which it's actually irrelevant to the assessment of whether they're eligible or not. That's going to be your really vulnerable provision. So they should actually tweak it so that it's not so vulnerable to that constitutional challenge. Now, you've also raised concerns not only about the nature of the dual track, but the fact that the dual track is framed still through reasonably foreseeable death. And because that phrase has been part of the law since 2016 now, I understand the 90-day waiting period is a concern. Why just the mere use of this language is is problematic in your view? 
It's actually what they're doing when they're talking about the maintenance of this provision that is making me really, really uncomfortable. And that is, they say on the one hand, reasonably foreseeable, we've come to understand what it means, clinicians know what it means, and so we want to keep this familiar term, and that's good. That would be okay. Okay, there, there is some truth to that. On the other hand, they keep talking in terms of people being at the end of life, dying, temporal proximity, and those are inconsistent because reasonably foreseeable on the on the hand over here where interpretation has developed doesn't just mean temporal proximity. It means temporal proximity and or a predictable trajectory toward death. And by that example is on the date of diagnosis with ALS, which is the disease that killed Sue Rodriguez and Gloria Taylor, you are on a predictable trajectory toward death, but you're not 12 months out from death. You don't have temporal proximity. And the Minister of Health at the time, Jane Philpott, she actually said in her testimony, yeah, on the day of diagnosis, you'd meet reasonably foreseeable. You wouldn't be eligible because you don't meet the other criteria, but you would be RF. And that has been adopted by the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Nova Scotia explicitly and by the Canadian Association of Made Assessors and Providers. And it, you know, in practice, it's there, but it looks like what they're trying to do is narrow what reasonably foreseeable meant. So I think they're actually. There are people who are going to face greater barriers to access under C7 than they did under C14. So it's not that the law would need to be changed per se, but that you would want to see when the minister attends that committee, as an example, and he has asked this question, that he confirms in clear terms that it remains not only temporal, one is close to death as a matter of time, but that there's also a predictable path to death, which is as the current definition is understood. Yes, yes. I would like to see him ask that question in a very clear and concise way so that we can understand what the implications of what is proposed are. You know, we've already lived through confusion about the meaning of reasonably foreseeable, right? When it first came in, a number of us went up there and said, clinicians don't understand this. The regulator of clinicians, physicians said, we don't understand what this means. And sure enough, it comes in and people are like, what does it mean? And you had some people saying, oh, you have to be 12 months. You still have some people saying you have to be 12 months. But then you had other people who said, no, it's maybe it's two to three years. You had others, well, how, how far away is too far away? You have others saying it's predictable trajectory. So we've lived through this and we cannot put clinicians and patients through that again. A lack of clarity about the meaning of a law is unforgivable. And, you know, one of the things they've said in the past is they point to the importance of discretion on the part of clinicians. I 100% agree that clinicians have to have discretion about whether somebody meets the eligibility criteria, but they don't, they shouldn't have discretion about what the provision in the law means. Right. Because otherwise you get discretion exercised very differently in different parts of the country. Access is different in different parts of the country. And then it, I would think you end up shopping among people who are ultimately the gatekeepers to this, which is our, our health profession. And we don't want to see that either. And so uh, it makes sense to have as much clarity as we can have in the law when it matters so much to mm-hmm. individuals' lives and, mm-hmm. and these fundamental mm-hmm. decisions that people are making. And the other change in C7 that in some ways rolls back potential access to MAID is the exclusion of mental illness. And specifically, the bill says mental illness is not a serious and incurable illness, disease, or disability. 
you've taken great issue with this change. Mm -hmm. Can you explain to us why is that of great concern? Yeah, so it's it's deja vu. I don't know whether you're having that same sense because you were one of the very few who stood up and said, you know, C-14 is unconstitutional. I had the same reaction when I read this bill. Wait, what? You are excluding mental illness? That, that, that's just fundamentally discriminatory. So I got a lot of problems with it, as, as, as you say. I mean, one is that it is discriminatory. It, it says if you have mental illness, you don't get to have this. And somebody with physical illness does. And yeah, as you well know, like under the chart, you are allowed to limit a right. You can discriminate as long as it's demonstrably justified in free and democratic society. Well, it's not demonstrably justifiable to say only mental illness doesn't get this. Only persons with mental illness don't get this because the concerns that have been raised about that have already been canvassed in court and found to be wanting. It's also profoundly stigmatizing because it's saying mental illness is is not an illness. And we've been fighting against that for years to say mental illness is an illness and people don't get better not because they don't try or that their suffering is somehow not real. And that's all implicit. It'll be taken. It may not have been intended. I'm sure it wasn't intended, but it absolutely gets taken from an expression like that. It's also logically incoherent because people may not realize if you have a comorbidity, meaning another condition, then you're not excluded. Give you a concrete example. So two people, they've both had bipolar disorder for 30 years, experiencing enduring and intolerable suffering from it, advanced state of decline and capability. One person, that is their sole condition. They don't qualify for MAID. The other one has diabetes. Well, they have a serious and incurable condition. Diabetes has nothing to do with their reason for wanting MAID anything like that, but they get access. So it makes no sense because if, if what you're worried about is things like, is it incurable? Is the suffering irremediable? Do they have capacity? Which are the things people raise about mental illness? That applies just as much, but they got diabetes. And so now they can have access. That is incomprehensible. I always took the view that we ought to be cautious with mental health because some mental illnesses, including depression at times, can impinge upon our ability to make decisions and and fully freely provide informed consent. And Mm -hmm. where, where mental health issues do impinge upon our ability to consent, they impinge upon our capacity, then we rightly ought to exercise caution. But there are clearly Mm -hmm. instances and you mentioned the courts have weighed in. And I've said to the justice minister's office that they need to answer this one case for me. And it's, you are probably familiar with it, but there's an Alberta Court of Appeal case from 2016. And it's a case of EF and she suffers from involuntary muscle spasms that radiate from her face through the sides and top of her head into her shoulders, causing her severe and constant pain and migraines. It goes on and on and on, but it is an underlying mental illness that causes this physical pain. And if she would be excluded from accessing MAID under C7, then I think it's unconstitutional. The Justice Minister's Office has not answered that concern yet. No, I imagine they haven't. And there are other cases that demonstrate the same problem, which is there are many mental disorders which don't carry with them the complexities 
that they use to justify the exclusion. You were talking before, you started on the EF case talking about depression and it can have an impact on capacity. Others say, yeah, and depression can also, we never know if depression will lift. So how do we know it's irremediable or incurable? Yeah, but some mental disorders do not have that issue at all, any of those issues. So it's both too narrow and too broad in its operation. It's going to exclude some people who don't have any of the things that set you up to want to be protecting them and excluding them. And it also doesn't include some of the physical conditions that actually have similar kinds of problems that generate. So what I think we need to do with mental illness is take a step back and say, what's worrying us? It's worrying us is that the capacity issue you raised, or do we really know if it's incurable? You know, what is it the disease talking people throw all kinds of things like that is to say, well, wait a minute, this is inside the doctor patient relationship or the nurse practitioner patient relationship. And if you can't tell what I keep saying is if you can't use complexity and difficulty in determining whether the criteria are met as a reason to exclude in the law, because you're already excluded under the law. Because if the clinician is not of the opinion, doesn't believe the person has capacity, is incurable, and so on, if it's too confusing for them, they can't form the opinion that they meet the eligibility criteria, in which case they're ineligible. Exactly. So what are you what are you doing? You're doing a blanket and you can't do blanket. A blanket exclusion only makes sense where there is never an instance where one with mental health, mental illnesses can consent, for example, whereas the case mm-hmm. I referenced, the Alberta Court of Appeal very clearly says, while her condition is diagnosed as a psychiatric one, her capacity and her cognitive ability to make informed decisions, including providing consent to terminate her life, are unimpaired. So there are obviously cases, not not theoretical cases, there are cases that have been litigated through our court system that we have documentary evidence of, and we have now excluded those cases through C7. And uh, the answer, obviously, is to delete that section. Overall, is this an area where you would say it's unconstitutional, and therefore, if you were in my shoes, you would take a stand, and if this was the same bill at third reading, you would vote against the bill? Or would you say, overall, it's worth supporting to get the positive changes through because at some point at second reading, mm-hmm. I'm obviously supportive of it. And I would make the case to make these changes at committee, but I will be faced with the same decision I was faced with in the last parliament about mm. ultimate support for poten- a potentially unchanged bill. I don't know if you have mm. a view of this, if you were in my shoes. I'm going to, I'll take a bit of a wiggle <laughs> out, of, out of the question, but I will come back and answer the hard one. But the first is because I would say I would fight really hard. If you can't get, If you can't get it taken out, I would fight hard for a sunset clause, meaning I would say, okay, this is there, but we say this provision ceases to have any force and effect six or 12 months after the coming into force of this legislation. And here's why. A, I think it's unconstitutional. And people should stop having to litigate for their rights. It is a huge burden to put on people. And and you don't get to just say, well, if, we, if we're wrong, people can take us to court and prove us to be wrong. That's, that's just not right. But the other reason is the government is saying we're doing the five-year review. And we, why we are putting this in is because it, we need a pause. We need to not have mental illness coming at the clinicians sole, as the sole underlying condition, coming at clinicians because it's, it's too complicated. We don't have practice standards and so on. They may say that. And so what we're going to do in this five-year review is we're looking at it. We will come to grips with this issue 
and we will then deal with it. Well, then put your money where your mouth is. You should be willing to have a sunset clause, right? It should be the government that runs the risk of not actually dealing with it and then not having that provision in place rather than the people who are waiting for their rights, who, you know, you go through the five-year review and, and honestly, you just do nothing. What, nothing is going to compel the government to do anything in response to the five-year review, right? So I think the onus is on the government who is saying, trust us, we're going to deal with this. We're going to figure out how to deal with this in a non-discriminatory way. Then I say, well, then you have faith in yourself. You show me that you mean it by putting a sunset clause in. And then your hard, hard, hard question, that's why I'm not a politician. You know, you go through law school, we grew up with the charter. I don't, I don't think I could vote for a bill that I believed was discriminatory, especially a bill that's discriminatory against people with mental illness, because they're already so discriminated against. You rightly make the point that there's a long history of that stigma. And we've actually, in recent years, spent considerable effort to overcome that stigma. And yet the message of this is you're not actually capable of making decisions for yourself. You're vulnerable to bad decisions made by you. There's a similar view in C14, and it hasn't been changed in C7, about people who are not of uh, an age of majority, that they are not deemed to be able to make these kinds of decisions. I said in Mm -hmm. a speech in 2016, it must have been an answer to C14 then, that a competent adult should not be defined by age, but by capacity to understand and to choose. And I said that because that's the way our law already operates in medical settings for any other fundamental decision that is going to impact one's health. It's not clear to me why we take a different tack, but there's an issue where I also see practically not many people are ever going to need to avail themselves of this. And that does seem like an issue that could be dealt with in the course of a five-year review in a fairer way. Politicians often are told about the Globe and Mail test. Would you be comfortable if this showed up on the front page of the Globe and Mail? Then you make your decision about ARV. I have the con law test. So would I put this as a question on a constitutional law exam? Is it too easy? And this one is too easy. Clearly, it's a violation of the charter and cannot be sustained. It's too easy. It's clearly, I mean, it's actually easier than mental illness. But that said, the government is is going to deal with it in the five-year review. And I would not be surprised if they came to grips with it. Again, you know, pointing to those various expert groups, the Provincial Territorial Expert Advisory Group, the Special Joint Committee, they said, do this. And the special joint committee had a good move. I thought it was quite inspired, which is that they said, we're going to have the, the provision is going to be that, that mature minors, which is the group you were talking about, can have access to MAID. But this provision, it's the opposite of what I said for the sunset clause on mental illness. This one doesn't come into force for, I think they may have said two years or so, because what that is to, to do is to give time to the clinicians to develop practice standards and guidelines and figure out, is there nuance to how we deal with mature minors in this? And I thought, okay, that's defensible. That one you could put on a comma exam. Straight exclusion, you can't. But deal with it that way because there's no justification. But you're absolutely right. There's very few. And that's, again, where I then say we need courage and leadership from parliament because there's so few, who's going to litigate for it? Right. Imagine you've got a 17-year-old who is dying of, let's say, cancer, which is your vast majority of need cases, right? And wants to fight it. And then the parents are losing their child. And you want 
that family dynamic to have to be they, that they spend those last hours and weeks and energy fighting in court. That's just not right. You can't make law that way. So I think parliament needs to take a long, hard look at itself and say, can we in any way defend having this exclusion? I personally would not fight for it right now because it's October. You need to get this done by, I mean, I would support it wholeheartedly, especially just do what the special joint committee recommended, which put it in and then have a couple of years or a year to get to come to grips with it. Because Sick Kids in Toronto already has developed some guidelines. And so- I always wondered why we needed to comment on it at all. I mean, there are existing <laughs> laws, as I say, on the books that deal with minor yeah. situations where we assess capacity in the context of individual cases. I just couldn't understand why when it comes to these important fundamental life decisions, which are not going to be in many cases, why no. we want to draw these bright lines instead of context-specific decisions where we have people who are assessing capacity and have an experience in, in assessing that kind of capacity yeah. in other medical settings. Absolutely. I, I kind of shake my head. We, we, we have it like that because the example we can give that just shows the absurdity is somebody is 17 years, 350 days, they can't have it. 15 days later, they can. Right. What have you achieved by making them endure that intolerable suffering for 15 days. It just shows the absurdity of a bright line based on chronology, which is why everywhere has rejected an age criteria for consent to medical care. So yeah, it should, it should go. My last question is a more personal one. I came Mm. to this issue myself in part because not only on assisted dying, but also as it relates to our drug laws, as it relates to our prostitution laws. I mentioned before we started recording that I did my master's at Oxford where I studied section seven with reference to these three issues and Mm -hmm. made the case that the courts would revisit these issues based on section seven jurisprudence. But I I really was motivated in many respects by the fact that there is this, I think archaic religious morality that is pervasive in the way that we have approached these issues traditionally as a society at the expense of individual rights and mm-hmm. concern for individuals' security and uh, individuals' well-being. And the charter changes all that in to a great degree, and I think in a very positive way. Why are you so passionate about and why have you dedicated so much time to getting this right and to demanding that the government gets this right? I think it's because it hits at the intersection of autonomy and suffering respecting autonomy and alleviating suffering. And for me, where you have a choice that if we respect it, we are respecting autonomy of persons, which is so central for us. And we are looking at suffering and saying, we have a way of ending what this person considers to be intolerable suffering. I feel that I need to fight for those people. Those people should not be in the position that the litigants have have been in that they have to do it. So. I should take that on and fight for it. So it's, you know, the charter is such a beautiful instrument for us and and should be used. I'm grateful we have it because I look at how assisted dying has developed in Canada versus in Australia where where they don't have that instrument or in New Zealand uh, where they don't have that instrument. We've had it and it enables us to fight. And I'm just, I'm sort of more comfortable fighting for this issue that is both about autonomy and suffering as opposed to a pure autonomy issue. So I've just been consumed with this and, and done the sort of pure autonomy more on the side, whereas I've tried to, I've really tried to dedicate myself to this because 
the the suffering is is so it, it is by definition intolerable and how do we not fight for people to be able to end that when they want to i could not agree more you were right about c14 i think you are also right about c7 i hope the government listens to you and others who are expert in the law and have called for changes. And I really appreciate your advocacy and your writing. And I also really appreciate your time. I really enjoyed our time. And I appreciate your courage in standing up on C14 and what I, the advocacy I anticipate seeing you exercise over C7. Thanks very much. Remember to subscribe for future episodes at uncommons.ca. And please do leave a five-star review if you like what we're doing on your platform of choice. 